And the whole goal of this section of my career is to develop domestic rubber producing crops that can produce the rubber and latex that we need for critical applications. Hmm, okay. So what is the, the current issue? Is you know all the rubber trees, are they over in Indonesia? Where are they? Are they domestic? Well, at the moment, Thailand is the largest single producer. But then we've also got uh, Malaysia, Vietnam, China, India. Um, and then there are some parts in, in West Africa as well where there are rubber tree plantations. Not very much comes from South America because they have a systemic fatal disease called South American leaf blight. Increased stress is linked with teeth grinding and clenching, which causes poor sleep, jaw pain, and headaches. Did you know that one in every four adults grind or clench their teeth while they're sleeping? A Remy Custom Night Guard can protect your teeth from grinding and clenching, while saving you hundreds of dollars compared to getting one at the dental office. Use code GUARD20 for 20% off your order. Visit shopremy.com now. S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I dot com. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%. A real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Katrina Cornish. Uh, she's a professor at Ohio State University, so we're going to hear about her research and her work. So, Katrina, thank you for coming. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, please, uh, you know, tell me a bit about your past leading up to this moment, and then uh, let's talk about your current research. All right. Well, I've been working on natural rubber production since the late 80s, and after doing a postdoc, I ended up leading the project at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Research Service in Albany, California. And after 15 years there, I moved to industry. And after six years there, I moved to Ohio State. Go Buckeyes. And I've been here for nearly 13 years now, something over 12. And the whole goal of this, this section of my career is to develop domestic rubber producing crops that can produce the rubber and latex that we need for critical applications because all of our rubber is imported. And with all the supply chain disruptions, we have had serious difficulty getting rubber to make and use in 50,000 different things that require natural rubber. So that's what I work on. Everything from gene editing to device development, everything in between. Oh, how much of the rubber that is used today is natural versus uh, made in the lab? Oh, it's actually well over 45% now. It's usually just a little under the total amount of synthetic rubber, but it's a, a very important amount. And it's over 40 million metric tons a year is what's used, which is about the equivalent, oh, wow. the equivalent of about 13 African elephants a minute tapped into little cups by rubber tappers. How, how does rubber come naturally? I, I, I guess it, I've heard it comes from trees, but I don't know uh, what it looks like or you know what's the process currently. Well, well there's 2,500 2, species of plants known to make natural rubber. It's been just happenstance that we get all of it at the moment from the 
tropical rubber tree called Herbea brasiliensis, which actually is it originates in the Amazon. Uh, but about 90% is produced in Southeast Asia, and 80% of the global rubber supply is currently controlled by China. We have none in the States, but there are these other others of the, the other 200 and the other 2,499 species. There are many of those which could be farmed in the United States. There's a big problem with the Herbea tree anyway, in that it's grown as clones. So you can go for miles and miles in the genetically identical trees, touching all their leaves together. And this means mm. when they catch something, it can spread very, very quickly. Towards the end of 2019, over the space of six months, two leaf blights spread to a million acres of Herbea trees. And 2020 saw a drop of 10% in the global rubber supply. And that's more than we import into the U.S. Oh, okay. So, but again, literally, since these trees are clones, I think that's a big time danger, you know, to disease or, you know, any other kinds of pests and stuff. Why are they all clones? Why not make, you know, 20 different uh, similar ones that aren't clones and then clone them and have a mixture in the fields? Well, Well, there's a question for you. It wasn't in my control, but they were selected for high yield. So... And the number of times you could tap them, you know, the, the distance between how many days between tapping a panel and then tapping, re-tapping it. So these have been selected from, you know, the original uh, number of trees was only about 12. And uh, then from those, these have been these have been selected and then more selections have been made. Um, and then when you've got a good one, then they clone them by bud grafting. And so they're clonal scions on seedling rootstocks, but the variation in the seedling rootstocks is hardly anything because they come from those same trees as well. So I agree it would be much better to not rely on so few high-yielding clones, but that is what has happened. And being a tree, you can't fix that very quickly at all. And nobody wants to grow mm, trees that sure. have less rubber. How, how long, um, you know, growing a tree from scratch so you can get rubber out of it, and how long does it last before it stops producing enough? Well, from the beginning, when you start making your grafts, you're looking about seven years before you could start cutting it. And then the plantations, a tree would have a lifetime of about 30 to 35 years. And then it's turned into furniture. And this assumes it doesn't contract a syndrome called tapping panel dryness, where it just says, I'm not going to do it anymore. Sorry, but that's it. So if you don't have it. So, so literally, what, what is the tapping process? What does it look like? Well, you have a, a, a big curved knife and you cut in a counterclockwise direction in a downward spiral. You cut through the bark just the right distance so that you cut through the pipe-like rubber-containing vessels called latissifers without doing any permanent damage to the tree. So that, that angle basically cuts the pipes, which spiral the other way, at, at a right angle. And then it trickles down the edge of the cup and you have a little spout you hammer into the tree at the bottom of that, a little cup you hang off the end of the spout. And so it trickles down the cut and is collected into the little cup. And then you either have stabilizers in there so it stays in the form of latex, which can then be used for gloves or can be coagulated into rubber. Or you might have lump rubber where you have a coagulant in the cup so it's directly coagulated. So, but it's all harvested as latex. It's just there's what's done with it after that is specific to the different markets. And basically, uh, yeah, somebody, yeah, somebody will go out in the pre-dawn hours, ideally, to make those cuts, and then they'll come back later to collect the 
collect the latex into buckets and take it down the tree line. It really hasn't changed for over 100 years. There have been attempts to automate it, but none of them have got very far yet. You don't get paid very much for it. <laughs> Remy Night Guards are designed for comfort. Remy sends you an at-home impression kit and has a team of in-house dental professionals to make you custom, comfortable night guards that you'll forget you're wearing, all for 80% less than the cost at the dental office. Visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20% off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. Remember, that's S-H-O-P-R-E-M-I dot com. So what is the process taking it from latex to, uh, to rubber? What does that look like? Well, there's a range of processes depending on the manufacturer. So the classic one is making something called rib smoke sheets, where you actually smoke the rubber. So you coagulate and smoke it and you, uh, you fold it over like, like your comforter. You're trying to dry it. You hold it. You fold it over a stand so both sides can dry and it gets smoked to preserve it. But there's also other coagulation methods. You can acid coagulate it. So there's a number of things that they do, depending on the quality of the rubber you're looking for. So if you want a really premium, non-smelly, lovely rubber, then you'll be doing something like a thin pale crepe, which is very light colored, nice rubber. But if you're doing your regular old passenger car tire, you're doing a, a standard grade 20, which is probably mostly smoked rubber. So my tire factories okay, are very, very stinky. <laughs> so, okay. So what... what... What's the structure of latex versus the structure of rubber? Like what is, you know, what's added or what does the recipe look like? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting because rubber is one of those words that is completely contextually driven. But what, what do you actually mean? So if you mean the rubber molecule, that's cis one four polyisoprene. So it's a long molecule, maybe about 15,000 monomers in a row. Sometimes they're branched, sometimes they aren't. But that's chemically what it is, cis one four polyisoprene. If you're talking about a latex, that's that polymer made inside a microscopic rubber particle, you know, one micron to four microns, you know, that sort of size. In a veil, it's one and a little subset as well that are smaller. And the membrane is, is a single layer. It's not a bilayer membrane. It's just one side of it. And it contains species-specific lipids and proteins, including the rubber transferase complex. And so now, You've got those rubber particles floating around in the cytosol of the latissifer. And then the cytosol itself, of course, contains everything that a cell needs to, to be a manufacturing site, not just of the rubber, but of everything else as well. So you can take those rubber particles and wash them and take away those soluble components or not. It depends whether you want to do it or not. So after you have that latex, if you're going to stay in the form of latex, it then goes through a high-speed distilled centrifuge where half the water is taken out. And then the rubber concentration goes from low 30% to low 60%. And then that is what's shipped in totes and tankers and drums to, to glove and condom factories and balloons and things like that. Now, if you want to turn it into solid yeah. rubber, you take that solid rubber and it still contains all those proteins and everything. Um, and it turns into a big lump, which you dry one way or another. And that then goes to compression molded things like tires. But to make the product, you have to add a whole bunch of other things in it because you have to cross-link it to get the properties you want. You've probably heard of uh, vulcanization. This is how this is the sulfur cross-links that I used for most rubber products. Not all. There are some alternatives. But and you have accelerators, antioxidants, stabilizers. 
sulfur, which is the cross link, and then you use heat to accelerate the whole the whole thing, so you get a cured product very quickly instead of having to wait for weeks. Hmm, okay, so what is the current uh, the current issue? Is you know all the rubber trees are they over in Indonesia? Where are they? Are they domestic? Well, at the moment, Thailand is the largest single producer, but then we've also got uh, Malaysia, Vietnam, China, India. Um, and then there are some parts in, in West Africa as well, where there are rubber tree plantations. Not very much comes from South America because they have a systemic fatal disease called South American leaf blight. And until very recently, this year even, you've never been able to take a direct flight from, Sa- from South America, from the rubber tree growing, native rubber tree uh, area, into uh, Southeast Asia, you've always had to get off a plane and get on a different one that's never been there. And this is to try and prevent South American leaf blight or SAL getting into Southeast Asia because it kills them. You know, some of these other diseases they might be able to recover from, but they don't recover from SAL and the plantations are, and they're small holdings now, but they're grown as if they were at plantation. They're contiguous, you know, but they won't, they're not resistant to SAL. And uh, if it really gets in and gets hold, you know, say these other two blights spread to a million acres in less than six months. If Saab gets there and establishes and starts to spread, you could lose the industry very, very quickly. Jeez. So what, what are people doing? Are they trying to, uh, you know, optimize other rubber trees now to be able to, uh, you know, to be to provide some diversity there? Or what are the solutions being well, looked at? What, well, basically, we need both geographical diversity and we need biological diversity. You know, if you think about, say, starch crops, crops grown for starch, you wheat, barley, corn, potatoes, it goes on and on and on. You know, there's dozens of them. The same for oilseed crops, there's dozens of them. Rubber crops, one, and it's clonal, and it's in one place, and it's got fatal diseases. So it's, it's crazy that we are so blind, blindfolded and we're waiting for a disaster before we throw huge amounts of money out and say, fix it straight away. And I think... With the COVID um, supply chain disruptions and the that rapidly spreading pair of diseases, people are sitting up now and taking notice and say, well, maybe we should be proactive for a change instead of reactive, because there is no sector of our economy that isn't completely dependent upon a secure natural rubber supply. So what well, I've been what, trying- what would happen? What would happen if rubber supplies ran out? What would okay. you estimate? You can't move anything. So on the the big issue, there's no tires. No planes. Planes to have 100% rubber tires, natural rubber tires. Trucks, 90 to 100% natural rubber. You can't move anything. Back to donkey carts. Wow. wow. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. And there's all the other things, too. <laughs> you know, there's still 400 medical devices made with natural rubber, you know. <laughs> so there's so, been... so all the rubber production is where again? Is literally 100% of it? Where? Uh, it's all in the tropics. Okay. Uh, about 89% is in Southeast Asia, about 8% is in West Africa, and about 3% in South America. All tropical. In Southeast Asia, what, what countries does rubber production mostly come from? Well, it's Thailand is the number one, but there's also Cambodia, Vietnam, India, China. I think there's some in Bangladesh, there's some in the Philippines, but those, those sorts of countries that are all in that growing growing region. But uh, it's crazy, you know, Indonesia is probably, Indonesia as well, Indonesia is the second largest. And if one of these diseases really got into that area, you know, South American leaf blight, Indonesia probably has most insulation of that because 
although most of it's grown on their largest islands, they are an island nation. There's low, forget how many islands there are in Indonesia, but there's a very large number. And so hopefully that separation would help not kill them all off straight away <laughs> if they've got it spread around their different islands in Indonesia. That's totally crazy. So if you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What, what is your role in all of this? What are you working on specifically to try to, you know, uh, prevent well, this I'm crisis work, from happening? I'm work, yeah, well, I'm working on two different temperate zone rubber producing species. I didn't invent them. One is Wayuli, which is a native of the Chihuahuan Desert. So it's actually native to the Big Bend region of Texas, but most of it is in Mexico. Uh, and so I've been working on that for a very long time. And then more recently, I've been working on the rubber dandelion, which can be grown in the northern states and farmed as an annual crop or hydroponically. But one of the big issues is that these crops have been supported in the past intermittently in times of crisis like World War II, we cut off from all our supplies. They've been really sponsored by tyre companies. Now, tyres are a commodity rubber crop. And so uh, fairly recently, you know, Cooper Tyre and Rubber Company, which has been bought by Goodyear, but they got a grant from USDA and they made beautiful Wayuli tires, absolutely 100% Wayuli, outperformed their regular tires, fantastic. And then we said, well, when are you going to roll those out? When can I buy the Wayuli rubber at a commodity price? Well, if you're establishing a new crop, you're not going to start with 100,000 acres or 8 million acres and, and dozens and dozens of processing you know, extraction plants. You're going to start with 10 acres, maybe, maybe a couple of hundred acres. Well, you can't produce in a pilot processing facility, Well, you can't produce commodity rubber from that type of scale. There's no economies of scale. So I put a lot of work into developing those specialty niche markets. So, for example, one thing that I work more with the latex than I do with the rubber because latex is more valuable than the rubber. And so, for example, for medical products like gloves, condoms, things like that, Wayuli is a softer, stretchier, just a strong film. You can make it very thin. You can forget you're wearing it. It's a spits like a second skin. It's absolutely fantastic. And it outperforms all of the others, whether they're synthetic or natural, that we know of at this time. So that would give you a price boost. And then we are developing at the moment with my startup company, Energene, the radiation, the first natural rubber radiation attenuation medical glove. At the moment, if you're using a natural latex glove, the amount of filler you have to put in it to attenuate the radiation according to ASTM standards is so much that it deteriorates the, or reduces the physical or mechanical performance of the glove below the standard that FDA requires the glove to meet to be a medical glove, like an examination glove or a surgeon's glove. So what FDA then tell the healthcare professionals, they, they're using a radiation procedure, they have to put a medical glove on first, then they have to put a radiation glove on or vice versa, so they can be protected from disease by one of the gloves and from radiation by the other glove. Okay, so now you're doing surgery and boxing gloves, you know, you know so it's really not a good outcome. Now, Wayuli has such a, a better polymer filler interaction, you can put all that attenuation filler in and still remain above the medical requirements for mechanical performance. So in one glove, we could be both an examination glove and a radiation attenuation glove, or a surgeon's glove and a radiation attenuation glove in one glove. Okay, now- but Wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. 
you, you mentioned this latex outperforms current latex. So how? What are the metrics? And then well, it's, that it's, I do want to ask you more about the glove. Yeah. yeah, it's softer, stretchier, and just as strong. So if you put it, you can make it thinner and still get the same protection. And if you put it on your hand, you know, if you put a nitrile glove on, if you ever put it, like a purple nitrile on, it's so stiff, you know, it's, your hand fingers start to wear out because you're fighting the matrix of the glove because it's a stiff material in your poor little finger muscles uh, having to move and move that matrix, move that glove. Now, with Yuli, there's no pushback at all because it's so soft and stretchy. You'll move your fingers, you don't even realize you're wearing one. There's no pushback. So you don't get hand fatigue with Yuli latex glove. Now, Havea latex is much better than the synthetics, but it's still nowhere near as good as Yuli. And part of that, if from a technical point of view, is that Yuli has true linear high molecular weight polymers, whereas Havea is a blanched polymer. So I, the way I imagine it in my mind is if you have a whole bunch of pieces of thread, you know, and you line them up, you know, you could see how if you knitted those things together, you could have a very thin but very strong uniform fil- film where you've done all the cross-linking. Now, if you're putting a whole bunch of tangled wool and trying to connect all those up, then you don't get anywhere near the same type of, of outcome. And I think that's where our polymer filler interaction comes in and, and where our it, superior properties come in. Now, for certain applications, the fact that it's softer and stretchier is not desirable. But in thin film applications like gloves and condoms that, or catheter balloons or trait tube cuffs or anything like that, it's, it's absolutely what you want. And it does not cross-react with type 1 latex allergy, which is why all these synthetics came in in the first place, because of that life-threatening allergy, which can kill people. Um, can any, that, is any significant percentage of uh, rubber or latex made synthetically, or is it still vastly mostly naturally? No, no. There's In the exam glove market, um, the synthetics have more than a 50% market share. Now, the surgical glove market, it's way below that. Surgeons do not like to use synthetic gloves because they aren't nearly as nice. So nitrile gloves are used in that market. There's there's PVC gloves, which are basically plastic plastic gloves. There's those food handler gloves. So there's a lot of lot of disposable gloves in the air. There's also chloroprene, which is a pretty good synthetic. There's synthetic polyisoprene, which is a pretty good synthetic. But um, none of the synthetics can match Havea, and Havea can't match Yuli. Hmm. Okay. Uh, are there any trade-offs in uh, in what you're making, or or in the synthetics, or besides people don't like them, let's say, or they're not uh, as well. You get better disease nice. You get but better protection, which is what the gloves are for in the first place. Something we've also also done is develop a glove durability testing device because the standards say what is the performance of the glove when you take it out of the box or out of the packet. And that's mandated by FDA, says you have to follow these standards, your glove must do this. But there are no standards about, now you put it on your hand, how long does that last? So we actually have made a device that can measure how long it lasts. And trust me, all the, all the naturals, almost all the naturals uh, types of gloves are definitely outlast the synthetics. And some of the really cheapo ones, they're going to break really quickly. You know, and, and people aren't going to necessarily realize that they're broken unless there's a catastrophic failure. They think they're being protected. And I think they probably aren't being protected very well at all because they're not. Well, what, are, what, are some of the, what are some of the trade-offs in terms of uh, disease resistance, but breathability, let's say? Or does well, no one, one care about breathability? None of them, none of them have, have significant breathability. So they're, they're, they're all waterproof and they're all there to prevent viruses uh, going through the film into your hand. So, but, 
in, in you know and exposing you to it. So they're all there to to protect you and protect your skin. Some of them do that better than others. And and of course, if it's a thinner film, it's a lot more com- comfortable than a thick film. Hmm, okay. How do you achieve uh, protection against viruses and bacteria? The, you know, the pore size of the glove would have to be, you know, minuscule. Or could the gloves be seeded with some kind of antimicrobial or antiviral? No, you, you, you can, uh, can use antimicrobial coatings and things, but they don't need to because rubber is, you know, if you think about it, a, a latex balloon for your children's party, you blow that up. Or you, you even use helium, which is an even smaller molecule. And the film is so tightly formed that it doesn't let the helium molecules out. Okay, now the helium molecules are much smaller than the smallest known human pathogenic virus. So a virus is actually quite a big thing relative to to a latex film. So unless unless it's been broken in some way. So the the pore size is on the order of what, 50 to 100 nanometers? Oh, that's pretty small. They're tiny. I was going to say, I'd have to look at how, how small is helium. Helium's tiny. Well, helium, I'm sure, would be like X number of angstroms, you know. But yeah, uh, but that's is it going? There, there are no pores big enough to let helium through. You know, it, t- it takes some time for the for helium balloon to deflate, and probably most of that is seeping out through the knot rather than through the matrix. Mm, okay, gotcha. Um, I don't know if it would be ridiculously expensive, but could there be gloves that uh, you put on and and you attach? Uh, I don't know, something to pump like maybe a little bit of nitrogen into them, just kind of create like a maybe a spacing or, you know, put some more air in there instead of them being just, uh, you know, right up against the skin. Do you think well, that would be helpful or practical? No, I don't think that would be helpful because you, when you're using gloves, you're putting them on because you need to have some finger dexterity for whatever it is you're doing. So it would be much more difficult, say, to do a, a fine surgery or an orthodontics procedure or 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 do some sewing or, or whatever you're doing. You, you need to have that fingertip control and you need to feel through the glove what you are, what you are doing, you know. And so the finer, the, the better the tactile sensation, and Wayuli is better at that too, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the better off you are and your patient or whatever, whatever it is you are needing to do while wearing those gloves. And, and it's some, another really nice thing, actually, I know I'm talking so much about Wayuli, we should talk about dandelion as well. But the, particularly if you're a woman, I'm not trying to be sexist here, but healthcare workers tend to have to cut their nails pretty much down to the quick. So they'll put their nails through the gloves. Now with Wayuli, it's so stretchy and strong that you wouldn't need to cut your nails. You could still have nice nails and still have a glove that didn't break when you were using it. And I think that would be really nice for, for nurses not to have to, to, to be able to have nice nails. You know, I don't, maybe it sounds frivolous, but it would be it would be nice for them, I think. Yeah, no, I understand. I mean, if you have long enough nails, though, then you lose all your dexterity anyway. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, nails an inch long or anything. But I'm talking ones that, you know, do actually project slightly beyond your finger <laughs> as opposed to not. Right. It makes sense. Yeah. Well, uh, well, continuing on with the other project, the other product that you mentioned, can we talk about that? I didn't catch the name exactly. Yeah, well, I'm just going to back up just very briefly. These specialty markets, you know, only two or 300 acres of Wayuli and a pilot plant would be needed to make 50% of the market share for, for U.S. radiation attenuation medical gloves, you know, and they, they go for $60, $65 a pair and they contain about $2 worth of raw material. So now you're looking, now you're looking at something 
where you've got a really big profit margin and you take the price of the, the, the surgeon's glove that you don't have to wear anymore off the price of the raw material and you can still, your manufacturer can still have the same profit margin, but your raw material costs can go up several fold without making a difference at the end. Lineman's gloves are another prime uh, target. They also over $60 a pair and they have to replace them every six months whether they want to or not. And, you know, they intend to be very patriotic, homegrown types of people. They'd love to have Lyman's gloves grown in the USA. I'm sure they would. Anyway, so going to the dandelion one, the rubber dandelion was the second most popular choice in World War II. And it comes from Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and, and uh, northwest China. And U.S. got it from the Russians. And so... For a while, it was called Russian dandelion, but it isn't anything to do with Russia, except they pinched it from the Kazakhs, you know, so, and the Kazakhstani people don't like it being called that either. And it's a terrible crop name, you know, Russian dandelion. Yeah, I could just see going down, going down the pub at the end of the week and say, what, what are you growing on your back 40, Joe? Oh, Russian dandelion. Yeah, I don't think so. So anyway, so we call it either rubber root or rubber dandelion, and it makes really good rubber in its roots. So in latissimus, like a veil, Wayuli doesn't make it in latissimus, it just makes it in ordinary cells. So you can't tap a rubber dandelion, you know, not, not en masse, that would be ridiculous. So both Wayuli and the rubber dandelion, we homogenize them first if you're doing latex, and then separating out the latex as if it were creamed from milk, based on the difference in specific gravity. Now, the rubber dandelion is nowhere near as vigorous as the one in your lawn, and the one in your lawn doesn't make rubber, okay, it's got sticky latex, but there's a lot more latex producing species than ones that have rubber in their latex. Okay, so it doesn't mean that it's rubber just because it's sticky. Uh, but anyway, so the rubber dandelion is a pretty feeble dandelion. So we'd be doing a lot of work at OSU to select sturdier ones, uh, select for herbicide resistance so that the farmer could chemically control weeds. You know, because the big question is how do you kill the dandelions without killing the dandelions? See what I mean? Because common dandelion is a closely related, a closely related cousin of the rubber dandelion. So we've been developing a lot of enabling technologies, uh, sequencing the genome, all those sorts of things. Uh, inbred lines, uh, one of our professors has been doing, which is really good for future germplasm development. And we've also developed new ways of getting the rubber out. So we're working on both the latex process, but also developed an enzyme-assisted water-based process that makes solid rubber from the dandelion, basically dissolves the rest of the tissue away from it. So that's a pretty good rubber. And then more recently, we developed a hydroponic system for rubber, you know, semi-aeroponic. So you grow the roots down, they contain the rubber, chop them off, grow them back down again, chop them off, grow them back down again. So you can have a repeat harvest system. And wait, wait, so that, wait, wait, wait. So this, this one, you're, the roots are what produces the, the latex or the rubber, that, not the, uh, the plant yeah. itself? That's the roots. It's the roots. That's right. And you can grow it in the field or you can grow it hydroponically. And if you grow it hydro yeah, and if you grow it hydroponically, because because it, it's a rosette plant, you know, this it, it's like the one in your in your lawn, you know, it just makes these flat leaves on the top on the top of the soil, you know, it doesn't have really much stuff above the ground, but it's got a lot of roots under the ground that, that make the rubber. But it's it's very nice if if you if you if a veya collapse next year. The indoor farming, vertically farmed, multiple harvest dandelion system would be the most expensive way to get your rubber back, but it would also be the quickest. So that's one of the reasons that's why we, we want to do it. That if you want to see the problem is we're so dependent on it, even if you could grow a veya 
in the US as parts of Florida, you probably could do it. Nobody's going to work for a maximum of $10 a day. And and you could and it would still be seven years before you got anything you could use. <laughs> you know, so that's not not the solution is to, to, to use use a bear. Solution is to to get in advance of a catastrophe enough acreage to perhaps uh, or, or indoor farming farms to supply about 10%, for example, of what the US actually needs. You can go from 10% to 100% just with money really quickly. Okay, because both of these plants make tons of seed. So, you know, Wait, so if, if I was a farmer right now and I had X number of acres and grew this stuff, would I have a market to sell into right now? Or the, the does big, no one even know that it's available? Or yeah, the, the big problem is there's only pilot facilities around. And because this is the big issue, we've got people wanting to buy the rubber or the latex and make things. We've got farmers really interested in growing it. Where is the processor? Okay, so we have processing plant designs. We have a pilot plant that's co-owned by OSU and Energene in Worcester, Ohio. There are some solvent extraction companies that will do it on spec. Bridgestone has a pilot plant for a, a large one for extracting Waiuli rubber. That's in Mesa, Arizona. But Waiuli can be extracted very effectively with solvents. I much prefer the water-based route. But that's because it, it all, all that rubber will dissolve in a strong organic like hexane. However, dandelion rubber... A lot of it is like a veyer in which it's already got a lot of crosslinks and it's called gel. And gel, by definition, can't dissolve in strong organic solvents. So you're much better off with a water-based process because otherwise you'll leave a lot of the rubber behind if you try and do it with organic solvents. But a lot of people are trying that route. I just don't, I just don't um, think that's a very good idea. The reason Hevea works, even though it's got all that gel, is that it's tapped as a latex. So it's never been solvent extracted to get it out. But but dandelion and wayuli, neither of them can be tapped. And and dandelion, you say, has has a lot of gel in it. And so solvents are a very tricky proposition for, for dandelion rubber extraction, in my opinion. Okay, I, I know the people out there will disagree and be confident they're doing very well with their uh, solvent extraction processes. Right. Well, when, when you say that, uh, you know, there's no process, is there no process for growing it in mass? Or no oh, process no, no, there's, there's, harvesting in mass. The growing and harvesting, those are very straightforward, apart from weed control and stand establishment in the dandelion. So we know how to grow Waiuli. That's not a problem. That's all been worked out. Dandelion is still challenging because of weed control and because of its weakness. Uh, it's not a very sturdy dandelion yet. But certainly there are groups like Farm Materials is doing a good job. They've got a, a grant with Goodyear from Biomade and the Air Force to, to grow a whole bunch. There's several other companies out there that are doing dandelion, doing dandelion. American Sustainable Rubber, Cultivat, you know, there's quite a few. But the farmer can't grow it unless there is a processor to sell it to. You see what I mean? So Right, okay. So the problem is not in the growing, but in the process. Yes, because there is not an existing processing industry to get the rubber out for these crops. And so that's what we're well, trying what, to do. Um, who's running the economics on this in light of the uh, supply chain disruptions, which may never well, come back? What does the economics look like now growing it locally versus not? Well, it certainly improves matters. Improves matters. We've actually had a handful of rubber companies flew their rubber in. Now, if they're going to start doing that, we, we won't have any trouble competing with that. 
flying it from the other side of the world. But it's there's a there's a lot of cost analyses being done. We know it, with economies of scale, we can have air prices will steadily go up. Alternatives will steadily go down. There'll be a crossover at some point, but that won't happen until there are a bunch of processing plants. And with latex, it's fresh shrub harvesting. So you don't want to dry this thing out in the field or you've got a crop filled with rubber uh, instead of filled with latex, which is the suspension of rubber particles are still in the emulsion form. If you desiccate your plant, they all glue themselves together. And it's like, you know, cream from milk. Cream can get turned into butter, but you can't turn your butter back into cream. Okay, so once you tip over, it's very expensive to do a re-emulsification process. You don't want to go that route. You want to make sure if you're going for latex, have it as latex in the first place. Keep it, keep it the way it, keep it the way it started. Um, so we have, as I say, we have pilot plants. We have proven at the 2,500 tons per year scale on a dry weight basis. Uh, all the unit operations we're ready to build. We're constantly trying to raise the money, get the investment to put the first one up. And we have enough seed of advanced lines to plant uh, 7,500 acres at the gate, which is enough for three processing plants to feed three processing plants. But for, for U.S. self-sustainability, we're going to want, say, 600 of those processing plants, you know. So Jeez. and you want to put the first one up. And after the first one's up and it's making money, you just go to the bank and borrow the money for all the others. And just build them up as fast as you can go. Uh, but the well, why not approach the major rubber uh you know, importers, and uh, maybe one of them will be like, you know what, this uh, this is definitely a good backup for us to have. Well, they they are all sort of thinking about it. They're thinking about it, but you know, when it comes down to say a tire company, they then always bought because commodity price, you know, and you can't get there without going through gloves and catheters and condoms and children's toys, sporting goods. Sporting goods are really a low hanging fruit. No FDA clearances needed for a football glove. You know, and you can't catch you can't catch a ball in the rain if you don't have natural latex on the fronts of your gloves. So you know, we, we want to get the NFL using using Wayuli or Dandelion rubber gloves. You know, that would be that would be fantastic. Get the Buckeyes to do it. You know, uh, win the national championship based on natural d- domestically produced natural rubber gloves. The shoes shoes are another prime target. They've all got nearly all of them have got natural rubber in, not a huge amount. And some shoes go for an enormous amount of money. And you could put some rubber that's say even 10 times the price of the commodity in that shoe, uh, make hardly any difference to your final price. So it's not mm. really the tire companies that we're that we're after in terms of supporting this. It's all the other ones, you know, that have higher margins on their products and use less rubber. You know, the tire industry uses enormous amounts, 70, 75% of all the rubber harvested does go to tires. But that's not where we're at. That's not where the first million acres should go. You know, maybe when you get to 10 million acres, start sending it to tires. In like Bridgestone recently um, announced their Formula One racing car tire made from Wayuli rubber. Now, that's a premium specialty, small amount of rubber market. And that, that's, that's if you're going to make a tire, that's the sort of thing to make. You know, or the Tour de France bicycle tire, you know, th- those sorts of products. But staying away from uh, car tires for a very long time and for truck tires for a considerable time as well, because airplanes are going to need them first, because you can't land you can't land a plane if you've got synthetic rubber in your tire, it'll blow up. Yeah, I understand. Well, very good. Where can people find out more about your work? Uh, where can they go to learn more about this, uh, the industry uh, and what's going on? Uh, we've got a website, both OSU and for my my company. I also did a 
TED Talk. So, or people could contact me at cornish.19 at osu.edu or at katrinacornish at energine.com. And that would be E-N-E-R-G-Y-E-N-E. So energy and then the word E-N-E on it, all as one. Katrina was, was, is with a K, Cornish is with a C. So I can send them to where they ought to go. We are also working with Bill Goldner out of the Office of Science, the USDA, trying to put together an interagency funding program for domestic natural rubber to try and put this up to the level where you could actually build a processing plant. The year before last, now I think it was, we were tech scouted by the Defence Procurement Act Title III people to, and we applied, if this is for domestic production, mainly for gloves. And, and so we put in a proposal and we passed and then all the money disappeared. So it was really bizarre because like in the in, in July, they had $7.2 billion to spend by September. And by August, it had all been moved to all been reappropriated. And so I thought, we finally got it. We're going to build that processing plant. Gone. You know, because we're looking at about $60 million to, to build that first processing plant. And so we're still doing our best to raise that raise that money. And we're planning to put the first one in Texas and then spread across all California, but spread across the southwest. And then, of course, our neighbors to the south would be very happy to We do already work with with Mexican company. And we have access to the wild stems. So in the long term, being able to mine the diversity of Wayuli will be extremely useful uh, in terms of improving the crop uh, moving forward. Well, very good. Uh, Katrina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and explaining this. I had no idea. And I'm sure. Most listeners didn't either. But, uh, no, no, that's that's a bizarre thing. You know, people just don't realize how much natural rubber we depend on. A tire is black, must be synthetic. But it's black because of the reinforcing filler, carbon black. It's not black because the rubber is black, because the rubber is amber in color. But people people don't don't see it. They don't they don't see it. They don't recognize that how vitally important it is and that we don't have any. And And as I say at the moment, with about 80 percent being controlled by china this isn't a good place to be you know those countries out there they're much more concerned about staying friends with china than they are staying friends with us they don't have to sell it to us yeah no that's true that's true yeah geopolitically uh a lot can happen and we could have a problem we certainly could okay well well very good thank you for coming on the podcast katrina i appreciate it well thank you richard i appreciate the invitation before you go, make sure to protect your smile from teeth grinding and clenching with a Remy Custom Night Guard. Visit shopremy.com to get yours now and take an extra 20% off your order with the code GUARD20 at checkout. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.